Thanksgiving be like if it wasn't a meal? So we, we, we want to say, oh, it's a day about giving thanks? Great! We're not having a meal this year. Oh, well, I'm not thankful anymore. Right? The, the part of the day of, of Thanksgiving. It's really difficult to separate those two things. And so what I, I thought we would do is uh, take a look at some of the meals in the book of Acts. Okay? Look at the meals in the book of Acts. Because I believe they're an important element. One of the things when we do go through a book of the Bible... Uh, chapter by chapter, particularly when it's as long as Acts is, is that we don't notice when things recur. So if you're in chapter 23, you probably don't remember a lot about chapter 15. And so if something shows up in chapter 1 and chapter 15 and chapter 23, you may not notice it because you're just in your lane. And so today as we sort of go back and, and look at this idea of meals, We'll sort of put the jigsaw puzzle together in a different way. Do you remember where the book of Acts begins? What's it begin with? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, right? And after that, Jesus um, is hidden from their sight by a cloud. So that's, our, that's the right answer, usually, for what's at the beginning of the book of Acts. And, and certainly the verses before that, the promise of the Holy Spirit, uh, is also p- particularly important. Uh, so two very important things. But they both take place in the same conversation. And where does that conversation take place? Chapter 1 and verse 4 gives us that answer. It says that on one occasion... While he was eating with them, he gave them this command. So it begins with a meal. Now, given the way that he is hidden from their sight by a cloud just a few verses later, I'm going with a picnic. So this was a picnic lunch. Picture whether it was in a park, on a hillside, in a field, probably not too far from Jerusalem. And Jesus is sitting down with his 11 apostles on a picnic blanket, just having a conversation. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I think of Jesus speaking, I always picture him up on something like this and with a big voice. I don't know if it was a deep voice, but it sounds better. It's got more authority if it's a deep voice. And he says, I command you. And they go, oh, it's a command. Everybody listen. And, and, and that's sort of what it feels like when we read through. I and mean, if you've got a red letter Bible and you see the red letters, and automatically the tone drops when the letters are red as we're reading. But what we have here, if you were walking by, you would have seen a group of guys sitting over there eating lunch together. And it would have looked very ordinary. And one of the things I want us to see as we go through here is that God is at work in the ordinary. That it doesn't always take the the fireworks for God to reveal himself. And I think we see God give us that message time and again. There are certainly moments of of what we call theophanies, where God reveals himself in powerful ways. 
in the, you know, the pillar of cloud in front of the Israelites, the pillar of fire at night as they travel through the Sinai wilderness. Um, but there are also times where God is very present in the ordinary. I think Acts begins like that. I mean, yes, it's the resurrected Jesus. There's nothing particularly ordinary about that. But nonetheless, if you're walking past, it's just Jesus and 11 guys sitting down on a picnic blanket. And Jesus says to them, wait, wait for my gift from the Father, which you have heard me speak about for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Like if ever there was a more important statement that something like the earth is about to change, history is about to change, we're used to the angels appearing to Mary and Mary and, and, you know, when Jesus is coming. But Jesus just sort of drops this over lunch. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to arrive in a few days. Go back to Jerusalem. And so I think that's our, where the book of Acts begins. is with a group of guys having lunch together. Uh, not sure. Who's back there? Can you click that for me, please? It's not advancing at the moment. Um, oh, now it is. It'll go too far. Okay. That's that one. <coughs> Thanks. So after, after this, the disciples do uh, return to Jerusalem. And the arrival, the, the Holy Spirit does arrive, as promised. This is in chapter 2 of Acts. And when the Holy Spirit arrives, there's certainly nothing ordinary about it. Right? Uh, the, this is, room is filled with a rushing wind. Suddenly people have flames of fire above their heads, if you can imagine that. Uh, they pour out into the streets. They are speaking in different languages. People think they are drunk. They say, no, it's too early in the day for us to be drunk. Besides which, we're speaking languages that we've never learnt, that people can understand. It's not incoherent babbling of a madman. And then Peter gives this sermon and 3,000 people are moved and motivated to respond to the gospel, to repent of crucifying Jesus, to say, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, you repent and you'll be baptized. And 3,000 give their lives to Jesus on that day. Boom! Right? Nothing ordinary about that day. But then what do they do? You would think there's going to be like these explosions in cities around the Roman Empire. It doesn't work like that. You see, after that one day, we're told in chapter 2 and verse 42, that they devoted, these 3,000 people, these new followers of Jesus, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's a very ordinary kind of routine. Because the sensational gets us attention, but it doesn't sustain us. Just as a rocket needs an enormous amount of propulsion to, to get going, to, to break that inertia, to get off the ground, and it has these huge fuel tanks, and it gets up so far and it jettisons that fuel tank, it doesn't need it anymore. Because it's got momentum. And now it continue on with a lot less fuel and go a whole lot further. And so I think we see it with the church, that the church wasn't maintained by the sensational Holy Spirit. The church was maintained 
by the indwelling, in a sense, ordinary Holy Spirit, if we can say that. And, and so they devote themselves to learning the apostles' teaching, hearing the stories of Jesus. They devote themselves to fellowship. What is that fellowship? It's breaking bread. It's breaking bread together. And to prayer. And so, in verse 46, we're told that they meet every day in the temple courts and then they break bread in their homes together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. This breaking bread, I know sometimes we, we hear breaking bread, we automatically think, oh, that must be the Lord's Supper. But it, 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 it sometimes is used in that sense, but it is also very commonly used just as a way of saying they have a meal together, they share a meal. And, and if it's a meal that includes prayer, it may even possibly have, have included the Lord's Supper in that context. But so we have our, our first observation about how important these meals were to the life of the first church. It was, what's a, it was the, the connection part. If you look at the other things, the apostles' teaching and to prayer, and we think of those both in terms of that vertical element, learning about God and praying to God. But the horizontal element was also important, the fellowship, which was done around kitchen tables throughout Jerusalem. And so we see here, and we're going to see throughout this lesson today, the power of meals, because this table fellowship connects and energizes the church. These people are starting something new, a new life, new friends, new purpose, new mission built around the resurrection of Jesus. And it gains its energy around kitchen tables as people together study the apostles' teaching and pray and eat. In Acts chapter 10, as we, we move on, we see here that God wants to teach Peter that Gentiles are welcome in the kingdom. He really wants to teach Peter that your definition of the kingdom has been too small. And he does so using food. One of the things that's really interesting about this, uh, this story is that uh, Peter has been staying at the uh, home of a man named Simon the Tanner. Now, a tanner is somebody who uh, turns animal hide into leather, right? Tans the hide. So, uh, if you're a Jew and you're constantly touching dead animals, what does that make you? Unclean. unclean. So, it doesn't just make Simon unclean, it makes his house unclean. Probably stinky. But Peter is staying in the house of Simon the Tanner. It's as though in his head he recognizes um, that the kingdom of God has expanded. That there is no clean and unclean. That, that that's an old way of viewing the world and that unclean people still have access to the throne of God through Jesus. And that sins can still be forgiven through Jesus. And so he's happy to stay in the home of Simon, the unclean, when other Jewish religious leaders would have avoided him 
in order to um, maintain their cleanliness. But he still has a problem. <laughs> because in, in chapter 10, when he, he uh, goes up, he, he's having a dream. And in this dream, he is told to eat unclean food. And, and I don't know what, the, what that was. Maybe it was like a rack of ribs or something. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it's Peter. Eat this rack of ribs. He's like, is it brisket? No, it's pork, ribs. He's like, no, I can't have it. And he's told repeatedly to eat the ribs. Peter says, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Whether it be a voice from heaven or an angel from God, I am not eating that unclean food. Because that was so ingrained in his head. Well, then, don't you know it, he immediately gets a knock on the door, and it's messengers from a Roman and they say, hey, this Roman wants to hear about Jesus. Will you come and tell him? Well, Peter, I think, starts to put some pieces together. He says, okay, I'll go. Let's, let's see what happens. This timing is really interesting. I think God's doing something here. And so he goes up and, and travels quite a distance, and he finds the Roman centurion, Cornelius. And when he, when he gets there, um, he sees the Holy Spirit. Come on, Cornelius. And the Holy Spirit is confirming that this Gentile, this Roman, can also receive the Holy Spirit, can also be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And Peter says, you know, I think I figured out what that dream meant. I'm still not going to eat ribs, but this person can become a Christian. This unclean, this Gentile person can become a Christian. And so he teaches him, he baptizes him in his household, and then we're told at the very end of chapter 10, so he ordered that they should be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. You know what happens if you stay in someone's house for a few days? You share a meal. Or two. And I wonder if Cornelius didn't break out the ribs <laughs> while he was there. I don't know. But the first thing when he returns to Jerusalem, you see, Peter wants to tell everyone about this great news. This is an important moment in the life of the church. We've already seen an apostle, uh, sorry, a deacon, uh, Philip, and the, the evangelist, you know, convert an Ethiopian. But we see here the, um, an apostle sort of recognize and, and be taught by God that a Gentile can become a follower of Jesus and be welcomed into the kingdom. And so, Peter, the apostle, says, I've got to go back. I've got to go back to Jerusalem and I've got to tell people about this because the kingdom of God is going to be bigger than whatever we thought. The mission of God is going to be bigger than we ever expected. We're, we've got to change our expectations. God is doing something new in the world. And so he hurries back to Jerusalem and he gets to the church and, and he goes into the upper room. But as he opens the door, he's, he's met there by some brothers. And they say, Peter, would like a word. Can you step over here? And, and he steps over there and they say to him, Peter, uh, we, we heard something about you. And it's probably not true, but you know, maybe you can just clarify this for us. But we heard that you went to the house of a Gentile and you had a meal while you were there. He goes, oh yeah, it's great. No, no, no. Um, Peter, we've got a problem here. Have you been to the temple? Have you, you know, cleansed yourself? Have you, you know, purified yourself? Like, what were you thinking, Peter? The rest of chapter 11 Peter goes on 
in verse 4, were told starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. But this was the problem that he ate with them. Why is eating with the Gentiles a problem? Well, certainly it's an issue because he may have served ribs or clams or something else that was unclean to the Jews. That's a possibility. But I think there's a bigger issue here. I think the, the brothers in Jerusalem had a problem because it wasn't so much about the food, it was what the food and the meal signified. Because I believe the table fellowship demonstrates acceptance and equality. It builds bridges. So when Peter sits down for a meal with a Roman centurion, Peter is saying, we're equals. Okay? I'll eat your food. I'll spend time with you. I've got nothing against you. It's a, a level of intimacy that is more than when he's a teacher in the front of a classroom. And so, and likewise, the Roman who is a centurion who is in charge of a hundred people, when he has a meal with Peter, he steps down, if you will, in social status and says, I'm going to eat with this nomadic Jewish teacher. And I'm going to make time for him and I'm going to share my food with him. Because we're equals and he can teach me something and learn from it. And there's acceptance and equality and it builds bridges. And the brothers in the Jerusalem church are not sure that there should be acceptance and that there should be equality and the bridges should be built to the Gentiles. And so Peter, through the rest of chapter 11, says, Yes, this is the future. This is God's vision for the church. And they go, oh, okay. Well, if the Holy Spirit's on board, that's good. And we move on. But that meal was important. We think the dream was important. We think the preaching was important. We think the baptism was important. And they were all important. But the meal was the stumbling block for the church in Jerusalem. So who we eat with matters. And then we turn to chapter... 16. And in chapter 16, we find it's a chapter where typically we think of Paul and Silas escaping prison. Okay, They're going to get out of, out of prison through an earthquake and God is doing great things to, to rescue them. But we find here that it's also a great hospitality chapter. It's a great hospitality chapter. God has just directed Paul. Paul was headed in one direction. God said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. Macedonia is a a country in in northern, I guess we'd say northern Greece or north of Greece. And uh, he he comes to the town of Philippi. And in Philippi, uh, he stays there a few days and then he goes out to the riverbank because that's where he expects the Jews to meet. Where there was no synagogue, typically they would meet out of town. Most towns were built on a water supply. And so he'd go out to the water supply and, uh, and find the place where they would meet. And, and they invite him to teach and share his purpose for being there, which he does, and he talks about Jesus. And Lydia responds. We're told in, in chapter 16 and uh, in verse uh, 14, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message in verse 15. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Her first action 
after being baptized was to invite a bunch of strange men to come and sleep on her couches. The, the, the connection, she recognized that, hey, we're in this together. Like, instantly, being baptized, she was like, we're in this together. You guys need a place to crash? Yeah, sure, you can crash at my place. In fact, I insist you crash at my place. I've got plenty of couches. And so they did. But she hadn't met them just you know, a few hours before. So we see some pretty, pretty radical hospitality from her. Now, we come down and we go through... The, the whole thing where uh, Paul and Silas get thrown in prison. Uh, we know that they're singing hymns in the middle of the night. That's a really good Thanksgiving sort of theme there. I'm not doing that sermon today, but uh, we could. Uh, they're singing hymns in prison in the middle of the night, and uh, there's an earthquake. They're, you know, they manage, Paul and Silas take the lead, and they have all the other prisoners uh, stay there. They convince the jailer that nobody's escaping. He won't be killed. He doesn't need to take his own life. And the jailer, out of appreciation, takes them back to his house. And, and he, he sort of takes some care of them. He listens to what they have to say, listens to their teaching. And, um, and, and then he, at, at the end of that, um, we're told in verse 33, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Immediately, he and his household were baptized. Then look what happens next. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And so I think this meal is a um, celebration meal. He's not giving them yesterday's leftover oatmeal. Okay. Um, Now, in my family growing up, we, we, we had special meals for special occasions. It may be different to yours. Here's how ours went. We were in a pretty rural area. Our state is not a large state. To give you some context, not because it's a great meal, but uh, there was one McDonald's in the whole state when I was growing up, and it was about three hours from where we lived, and we never drove to it. However, Kentucky Fried Chicken got its foot in the door, somehow or other, and there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken about 30 minutes from where we lived in the next town along the coast. My school was about 15 minutes further. So that meant the Kentucky Fried Chicken was between my house and my school. So whenever we had an awards night at the end of the year, and we wanted to go out afterwards and celebrate, you know where we went? We went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. When, When a sports season had finished and win or lose and we've just played and we've had a good time, you know where we went to celebrate? Kentucky Fried Chicken. I come from a large family. My mother usually had to go to the next town over in order to to give birth, you know, to go to the hospital. And to celebrate the birth of a new brother or sister, you know what we did? We went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so I picture the Philippian jailer has just been baptized. He wants to treat Paul and, and Silas to the celebration meal. You know what I picture? I picture him running down the road to Kentucky Fried Chicken and coming back with a big bucket for them and saying, hey, let's eat together, let's celebrate. You know, this coleslaw is great. You're going to love the mashed potatoes. And, And that is my picture of what he's doing is he is celebrating around food. 
He's saying, this is good. God is good. He and his whole household. I don't know how Kentucky Fried Chicken got to Devonport, Tasmania all those years ago, and I really don't know how it got to Philippi, Macedonia all those years ago, but I am sure that it was there. Because what we celebrate and who we celebrate with matters. What we celebrate and who we celebrate with matters. If you've ever had to put together a wedding, reception, guest list, you know how much it matters. Right? you ever had to agonize over that, whether for yourself or for a family member or for a friend, and you're helping them, and you're going through it, and you're going, oh, what about this cousin? Well, I haven't seen them for 20 years, but yeah, if you don't invite that person to our celebration, then this other person is going to feel like you don't appreciate that family. And what about this friend? Well, you know, we went to college together, and we were in the same club, but you know, I'm not sure. You know, we didn't really hang out. Yeah, but they're good friends with... What we celebrate and who we celebrate with matters. Who's important, who's close, and who's going to be hurt if they're left out. And so I want you to think about this. How does that play out in our church? How does that play out, with, play out in our church? Who do we eat with and who do we leave out? How does it play out amongst our guests? When we have guests on Sunday, or are there people that we eat with and people that we leave out? Or in our neighbors, there are people that we eat with and people that we leave out. Because each of those choices, you say, oh, I, do, I eat with this person every week, or oh, I don't eat with anyone. I go to church on a Sunday morning and I go home. And, and, and what we may not realize is that we are making decisions about who to invest in, who to connect with, who to energize, who to be energized by, and who to leave out. And so I think it's challenging for us. And I get it's particularly challenging during COVID, isn't it? And, and sometimes it may take some imagination to figure out ways of doing that. But meals matter. And we send messages by who we eat with and who we don't. And so the last meal that I want to point out is one that we touched on last week in Acts chapter 28 and verse 30. And here we, we come to the end of the book and we see that uh, Paul stayed for two years in this rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. You go, well, that... You may want to point out that that doesn't talk about meals. You're right. Um, but just as we would assume that with Cornelius, there was people staying with him that they would eat, as we, it, it was pretty much the culture. Uh, over in verse 23, we get a description of uh, how Paul conducted his teaching. He met with uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and we're told there he witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, from law and Moses and the prophets. 
So he was in the habit of like talking all day about Jesus, teaching all day. You think there wasn't some food involved there? That, that Paul in his prison, but still in a rented house, that when he welcomed people in, he just said, oh, it's BYO. Yeah, I'm not going to feed you. you know, spend the day with me, but don't expect any food. I'm in prison. Bring your own. I, I think he had his own rented house and he welcomed anyone in. And over the course of the day, there was a meal, snacks, drinks, because that's just what we do. Certainly that's the hospitality culture of that day and time. And so Paul, though, is welcoming all who came to see him. I think that's a significant statement. Think how far this display of hospitality has come from the start of the book. Okay? In Acts chapter 1, it's Jesus and the eleven having a picnic. And then we see, and we could have looked at other occasions of hospitality throughout this book, but we, we see Jewish Christians eating together. And then we see Jews and Gentile Christians eating together. We see them celebrating together with the Philippian jailer. And then we see Paul saying, hey, anyone's welcome at my table. Come and visit me. Sit down. Pull up a chair. I'll make the coffee. And let's talk about Jesus. And and so we've, we've made this journey from Acts 1 to Acts 28. And we've seen the table broaden along the way. Christianity is a welcoming, hospitable faith. We make room for other people in our lives and at our tables. We enlarge our tables because God has included us at His. Jesus told a story about a meal in Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read this to you this morning. And... uh, a short story. Luke 14, beginning at verse 15. When one of those who was at the table with him, it happens at a meal, said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God. You see the the Pharisees, the people of Jesus, they had this picture of what eternity was going to be like. It was going to be a feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus doesn't deny that. In fact, Jesus builds on it and expands on it and clarifies it. And he says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at that time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five oak of oxen, yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done in the house and there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out onto the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in 
so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And so I don't want to get caught up in who everybody is in this story, but it's a picture of God inviting people to his banquet, the feast in the kingdom of God in the life to come. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Jesus told his disciples at the last meal before his death, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Now, I think Jesus' Passover and Lord's Supper communion time was more than just the wafer and the, the sip of juice that we have. But whatever it was that he had, and whatever it is that we have, is a down payment on a feast with God in eternity. And so it certainly reminds us of Jesus' death and of Jesus' resurrection, but it also points us to a feast, to a banquet that is much greater. It's a banquet at which everybody is welcome. As Paul said, all are welcome. It doesn't matter whether we're Jews or Gentiles, wealthy or poor, educated or slaves, big families, single people. He welcomed all of them. On Thursday, we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving. We have so much to be thankful for in Christ, don't we? And whether COVID dampens our celebrations compared to previous years or whether we have a house that is overflowing, Jesus is looking forward to sharing a banquet with you. And I love in the story how he looks all over to find people until the house is full. Now, I don't want our application to be that some sort of guilt trip that you need to run out into the streets and just pull strangers into your living room on Thursday. All right, That's not, not my point today. Although, I'm not going to stop you if you feel so moved by the Spirit. But... I think who we welcome to our tables is important. How do we follow the example that God sets for us of being a hospitable and inclusive God? And so our uh, final point is just to remind ourselves that Jesus invites us to his table. And and having looked at the importance of table, this invitation is not just, hey, come and fill your stomachs. This invitation tells us something. It tells us that Jesus wants to connect with us. He wants to energize us. It tells us that Jesus accepts us. And and it seems strange, but even that he sees us as his equals. That we are his brothers and sisters. That we are children of God. That we are adopted into his family. It builds bridges, this meal, between Jesus, between God and us, when he invites us to come and sit at his table. And, and, and here's the other thing, is that this meal that God is planning with his people in his kingdom is one that celebrates what's important with the people that are important. You see, we hear about the angels celebrating when somebody gives their lives to follow Jesus, right? When they're baptized, And we go, but it's not just the angels that are celebrating. This feast is going to be God celebrating 
something important with the people that are important. Because you and I are important to God. And we're invited to his banquet. I think that's something that we can all be thankful for.